Suzanne Ciani, electronic composer. She captures the indefinable and turns it into music. Her instruments are synthesizers. Her vocabulary, words like reverb, delay, amplitude. designer, pioneer in sound design, really, and uh, composer Suzanne Chiani, uh, who got up really early to speak with us today, because she's on the West Coast. <laughs> hi, <laughs> hi, Suzanne, how are you? Good morning. Good morning. I'm fine. I, I, wish, I wish I'd been able to take that cup of coffee. You know, I, I'm staying at a friend's house because I got in late last night, and, uh, and it's early here, <laughs> so <laughs> I haven't used the coffee machine. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> You just got back from traveling last night, right? Yes, I flew in from Zurich. From Zurich. Night. And what were you doing there? Yeah. I was performing, as I'm doing now, um, on the Buchla. B-U-C-H-L-A. It is an analog modular electronic music instrument designed by Don Buchla in the 60s. Uh, and then, you know, he continued to design until he passed away a couple of years ago. And, uh, in, you know, in the old days, I worked with him in the late 60s. And now I've come back to that instrument. The other part of music, of course, is the motion and the personal involvement that a musician gives to his instrument. And that's something that I happen to feel and have with synthesizers. So I play the synthesizer the same way somebody else would play cello or violin. So I was playing at a festival in uh, Stad, you know, a beautiful mountain village in Switzerland. Uh, it was quite lovely. Right. That's really, really cool. <laughs> and yeah, so you uh, you were a part of the team that like, worked on and created the Abukla, right? I was um, a student. I was getting my master's degree in music composition from the University of California at Berkeley. I had come from the East Coast where I did my undergraduate and found myself on the West Coast. Uh, and I just fortunately, uh, through various friends, met Don Brooklyn. When I finished my school, I went to work for him. Mm -hmm. So I worked. Uh, you know, soldering circuit boards for $3 an hour. And, you know, that got me many, many advantages because I, I was right there. And, uh, you know, I, as time goes on, I realized just how valuable and deep that connection was. You know, and that's when you're young, 
you don't have a perspective on how things might evolve. I mean, my feeling in those days was that, you know, this was it. And everybody was going to have one of these. And that it was just, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. But, but it took 50 years. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's safe to say not everybody has a Google. <laughs> uh, right. I mean, I was actually one of the. <laughs> one of the things I was going to ask you was, uh, do you? Yeah. If and it sounds like maybe so because you're performing with the Google right now. Do you still have the same one that you used to carry, like you know, travel around with, like the original Google that you used, uh, or do you have a new one? I have a new one, yeah. but it's based on the old one mm -hmm. because, as we all know, technology, you know, has this evolutionary quality to it. Mm -hmm. uh, the design and the concepts are the same as the 200. So mm -hmm. the one that I played, you know, the first one was a 100 system, and there was a 200. And uh, I, had, I had some bad luck with that. It, you know, part of it broke, part of it was stolen, uh, it couldn't be repaired. I went back to New York, and, you know, it was tricky. But then when I came back in this reincarnation, um, I got the 200E, which is, you know, it has the same modules, the oscillators, the filters, the sequencers, the spatial modulator, mm -hmm. all of the things, yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's, yeah, similar. And so it's cool. And I couldn't get some of the modules that I loved and mm. remember, so I had them, I had them made. Mm -hmm. mm. So going back to you, essentially, like we gave the listeners kind of an introduction to you throughout this show, and you know what. Like you said, no, not a lot of people have buklas, but even back in the day, you were working with this like kind of futuristic and not well-known, you know, synthesizer called a bukla, but you used it in a context like people might have not known what a bukla was, but they definitely had heard your sounds uh, that you did for yeah. Atari or commercials, and those are instantly recognizable. Um, so at what point? Did you decide, like, you know, you had been working with this Bukla um, and in sound design. At what point did you decide to kind of take that and go into doing sound design and sound effects for companies? Well, really, it was because I was hungry. I, I was starving. I needed money. I was a pure artist with my Bukla and uh, realized pretty quickly, as most artists do, you need to financially support yourself. And so I, you know, I experimented. I did various things. I, I, I tried to become an engineer. Nobody would hire me. I tried. I couldn't even get hired to be a waitress because I had a master's degree. And my was overqualified. And, uh, and I, I made furniture. I designed furniture. Oh, wow. And then I decided that it's better to make these and make your money in a related and supported area. Like uh -huh. I played commercial music, I had many, many, you know, advantages and gifts from working in that sphere that contributed to my artistic uh, expression and being. So that was my 
formula really was I designed, uh, you know, during the week. I worked on commercial music, and on the weekend, I did my own music. It can do almost everything but talk. Introducing the Cutter, Black and Decker's most powerful string trimmer yet. The Cutter powers through grass, powers through weeds. And with the Cutter's command feed, just the touch of a button keeps the string at its most powerful cutting length. The Cutter. With command feed from Black & Decker, it can cut the time of trimming your yard. Brighten up. Come where flavors are rainbow. Skittles. Taste sensation. Color fascination. Yes. Lemon, lime, orange, strawberry. Variety. Skittles. Rainbow hues to chase your blues. Brighten up. Skittles bite-sized candies. A rainbow of flavors. You know, I really is a pure artist also in the commercial area. Uh -huh. Because uh, you know, it's very creative. Nobody nobody could tell me what to do. Right. Because they didn't know. <laughs> right. There's no blueprint for <laughs> what you're doing. <laughs> right. They have a lot of freedom, and I've been I've been very lucky mm -hmm. you know, because technology and that whole you know arena. But you know, here in this music that I hear, you know, my seven wave album, that was you know I had already done my pure Buku music for many years and was frustrated that nobody understood it mm -hmm. and so when i went to record i really combined my classical background with my electronic sensibilities mm -hmm. so something waves is 100 percent electronic but it's also very melodic and it was you know written it was composed and written so it was really uh you know my I, I arrived at a merger of those two identities. Mm -hmm. And this was in your, I'm sorry, this was in your uh, solo composition work or in your uh, sound design or in both? That... <clears throat> in my Seven Waves. Mm -hmm. My first album. Oh, in Seven Waves, Seven yes. Waves. Yes. Seven Waves, yeah. Right. And that's what I, we've been yeah, playing I, uh, for listeners throughout the show. But sorry, keep going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the wave, you know, it's one big connecting piece. Mm -hmm. And I designed the wave, you know, on the block. And, and, you know, it has 
the thing about technology is that it, as it grew and evolved, all kinds of new things came in. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the uh, if you look at the notes, most people don't even have the actual LP or the CD anymore, so they don't get to see the liner notes. But all the instruments as they came in, you know, were credited uh, on that on that album, ah. and it's kind of like. Yeah. Yeah, I totally know what you mean. Yeah. 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 It used to be something, like you said, it used to be something that people would look and see, you know, when you're digging through, uh, at least those of us that really love music, they'd be digging through records, and one of the things you look on in the liner notes is like, you know, what instruments were used, and if they listed, like, who were the backing musicians, and you could kind of start to pick apart, like, what records you want to buy, even if you had never heard it. Um, and it is yeah. true that it's something that you don't get anymore with digitized music. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, but you can always find it. You know, it's a little thing. Yeah, I think everything is available now, someplace. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, with the, mm-hmm. the internet. Uh, <laughs> um, right, the information. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the one of the things. So the reason I came across your work originally uh, is because I really like pinball machines, and I was researching Xenon. And I came across that old Omni like documentary. I'm on you because you did all the sound for this this 1980s pinball machine. And what I really think is really cool about that one is that not only did you use your your Buchla or your synthesizer or whatever equipment you were using to do the sound for it, you also used your voice. Like you sampled your own voice, um, like saying things like Xenon or or. And so I just wanted to know, like, can you tell me a little? This is more for me, even maybe more than anybody else. But uh, yeah, like what, like, can you tell us a little bit about that project and where you got the idea to incorporate your own voice into it? Um. Yes, welcome to Xenon. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, because by that, by, by that time, I was, you know, I was so deeply involved in technology. I was following you know, the, the development of chips, you know, Texas Instruments had one. And and, uh, and what happened at this particular juncture was that they had the first chip that had enough bandwidth to actually sample a female voice, which has a higher bandwidth because it's a higher frequency than, say, a low sound. So it takes more, more data, basically. And they had a chip, it was a Motorola chip, that had two parts. One of them was a very simple uh, wave-shaped tool. So it had, you know, maybe a square wave and a fine wave. Mm-hmm. And such a wave. You, could program, you could program this, this mm-hmm. half of the chip. And the other half of the chip was a small sampling system. And it had very defined limits. And what I did in those days, if you're really interested, I mean, by that time, I had an instrument called a synclavier, mm-hmm. which started out at $120,000. <laughs> our, and, uh, our, our co-host, uh, so you haven't been introduced yet he's laughing because he knows exactly he knows all these instruments that you he's a real tech head but he keep keep going <laughs> well you know one of my 
descriptives about that is that 10 megabytes of memory back then cost $50,000. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a different era. Mm-hmm. You know, it's when computers build rooms mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, memory was incredibly expensive. So, but anyway, what I did was I replicated the limitations of that little chip in this very expensive instrument mm-hmm. so that I could design the sound, you know, and and how they related to the machine, how they were triggered, how long they lasted, how they sped up, how they slowed down, etc. And I designed a composition that was essentially played by the player playing the pinball machine. Right. What was on um, it was the first machine. There was one machine prior to this that had a, um, a vocal sound, but it was like this big, big, low growl. And I was the first one to actually use, a, you know, a human recognizable voice. Uh, and I decided to make it sensual. Welcome to Zena. I was very interested in getting the whole composition to work, to think of the pinball as actually playing a piece. Because I think to add excitement to the game, that the background sound uh, should speed up as you play the game. The idea of using the short grunts and groans came to me when I watched people playing the game. The way that people expressed their frustrations or their involvement with the game. And I wanted the game to do that back. Pinball Symphony. A whole new world. What are the magic sources of these sounds? Well, the secret lies in a chip. I just noticed the way people play and, and the physical part of it. You know uh-huh. how, you know, the thing about pinball games is you're really using your whole body uh-huh. and, and you're and you're engaged, you know, mentally as well. And with the machine, there's this conversation that goes back and forth. You know, we hit a flipper and, and something happens. And uh, I, I did, I did. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, when you put in the player, the machine would, I had the machine go, ah. Yeah, know, like yeah. something really, <laughs> yeah. really nice that happened. Right. And, uh, yeah, so, and, and I think it is very, you know, feminine. I think women, as I was saying, have a slightly different perspective on a lot of technology. And for me, technology was always, and people don't often see that. Mm-mm. You know, they see it as this machine or this cold thing or this hard thing or this mechanistic thing. And for me, it was always, you know, something that was immersive and sensual. You know, my, the music was quadraphonic on the bumpla. Mm-hmm. So you could hear it and, you know, you could immerse yourself in the sound space. And, uh, and the machine could do things very, very slowly. You know, not just pumping dance items. Yeah. It could be the sound of low waves. 
you know, way building. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So anyway, that was my take on technology. That's interesting. Your uh, what you're kind of talking about how you know electronic music or machines can be essential. You also did the you did the electronic sc- score for that old show, The Stepford Wives, right? Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Elena, have you ever seen that show, Stepford Wives? Uh, no, I no? saw the remake movie. Uh, but okay. um, that is very interesting. How did you get invited <laughs> yeah. to uh, do that? And, and that whole idea of it was it was like, you know, kind of these robotic women, uh, women, yeah. right? But, and they're yeah. docile, too. Docile right. robotic women. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know, but to me, it kind of tied into that what you were saying. <laughs> um, but that well, was what I got invited. Yeah, I was in New York, mm-hmm. you know, by that time. When I first got to New York, um, I was pretty homeless. And I met um, the guys at Philip Glass's studio. Mm-hmm. It was called Basement Recording. And I put my bukla in there. You know, I went to New York with my bukla to do a concert in an art gallery. And this was in 1974. And uh, I met... Michael Small, who is the composer on that film. And, uh, you know, I showed him the book line. Film composers went crazy over this stuff because, uh, you know, it really was a wonderful tool for enhancing, you know, the sonic world of, uh, mm-hmm. of film scoring. thing is like we've kind of focused a lot on on what you were doing in, in the 80s but you haven't slowed down at all over the years you've released you know we talked about your first album um seven waves but you've released many many albums since then you've been nominated for some grammys right um right. you've gotten tons of accolades and awards and so but and i also know that you're you know you like we talked about at the beginning of the show you just got back from traveling so you still are performing new work, right? Yes. And, and at this stage, I'm actually, I, I'm very uh, surprised and happy that I can kind of close the loop because when I performed on the Bukla in the early 70s, throughout the 70s, there was this huge frustrating gap between me and the audience and uh, now it's a gift to me that I can go and play and have a young audience who really knows what I'm doing. <laughs> oh, and yeah. can really appreciate Right. And for me, it's just pure joy. You know, it's like, oh, my God, at last. You know, here we Yeah, are. finally the world and has caught up to you, Suzanne. <laughs> yeah, we can share it. It's so cool. But I don't know how long I'll continue to do this. Also, because the book was very fragile, 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I have it in, in one case with about 40 fragile stickers. And, uh, we'll see, you know, we'll see mm-hmm. what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, uh, what are your uh, uh, current kind of performances? Is there like a certain album you're supporting or a certain idea you have for your current performances? Well, um, you know, when I went back to the book club, mm-hmm. I, I thought, hmm, how, how did I used to play this? How did I play it? And I had written a paper in 1975 because I got a grant from the National Endowment of the Arts. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a 40-page paper about how do you play the bootle. Oh, wow. So I looked up, yeah, <laughs> I looked up this paper, and sure enough, I mean, everything was there. And that was my starting point. And uh, the sequences that I used in the 70s, you know, I have four... 16-stage sequences. Uh, those are the same sequences I'm using today. Wow. The, the nature of the instrument is that it's very improv- improvisatory. It's like a jazz or something. You have a starting point, and you have certain you know, definitions because you have, to, you have to make a patch. You know, the modules are separate, and you determine with a patch how they're going to communicate mm-hmm. with each other. You can alter that somewhat during a performance, but a lot of it is, you know, primary architecture. Um, then you get to be free. The beauty of this instrument is that you're sculpting and, you know, moving sound in the moment uh, in, a, in a very uh, reflexive, conscious way and it's fun you know it's really really fun it's compositional and performative at the same time so I'm just out there trying to say you know look this is was the vision for this type of instrument by the master designer Don Bukla you know I call him the Leonardo da Vinci of electronic <laughs> music instruments because he really he really understood what it was all about. It wasn't about adding a keyboard because the keyboard was put there just to make people feel comfortable. But it really limited the way you could interact with the machine. So now we've come, you know, the kids, I give them credit, you know, they said, wait, 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 let's go back. Let's look at what was being done. In, in the origins of this. And they've started a revolution in what, you know, in Euro-Rack, you know, these modular systems. Mm-hmm. They don't play it with traditional keyboards. They are programming, and they are interacting. Right. It. So, it's, it's yeah, it's a new thing. I mean, there's right. still a ways to go. Yeah. But you're you're so right. And, and yeah, Don... He didn't, from what I've heard anyways, yeah, it's, he didn't need to have, a, he knew you didn't need a keyboard to make music. You didn't need the, the keys. Um, and he kind of started us on that path. And um, that's really, really it's, it's great. It's called an inappropriate, yeah. inappropriate interface. Because uh. it really was mechanical. <laughs> right. And, you know, 
Um, that's fantastic. So we are, you know, approaching the end of our time here. And I just wanted to ask you, uh, do you have, I mean, we're big fans of you here at the radio station. And it's kind of why we reached out, obviously. But like, you know, uh, one of my... I love you, by the way. I just love you. Yeah? Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that leads yeah. me great into my next question. Like, do you think you have any possibility <laughs> of, of coming to Canada in the near future? <laughs> well, you know, I've been to Canada quite a bit. Yeah. I've, done, uh, yeah, I've done the West Coast. I've been to Toronto a few times. Mm-hmm. And I played at the Red Bull Music Academy, and, uh, you know, when they had their uh, event right. in Montreal. Yeah. Right. So um, but I have to say my favorite of all of the places has been Montreal. So we'll see. Yeah. We're it's so hard. humbled. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> it's hard to get into Montreal. You know, it's hard to get into Canada. You know, you get there at customs and, you know, there's, you know, you know, it really takes a while. Right. It's not just, yeah. Right, it's yeah. It's not easy. Especially if you're bringing in a, a big piece of equipment like the Buchla, uh and they might not uh, <laughs> take too kindly. <laughs> All right, Suzanne. Uh, we're just... Oh, it's been so much fun. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for waking up early to talk with us <laughs> and supporting community radio and doing all the work that you do. Uh, we're big fans, and, and we really appreciate you talking with us today. Thank you. I'm honored. Thank you. Take care. Of course. Bye. Have a good day. Bye. Uh, thanks again to Suzanne Chani, uh, sound designer and composer, and uh, really the person responsible for some of the most universally recognizable sounds of the late 20th century. Um, if you want to learn anything more about her, I, I recommend this really great documentary called A Life in Waves. And you can also follow her on Instagram at Sevwave, that's S E V V wave.